Voices of Experience, your audio and video access to interviews, insights, and information that will help you speak more and speak better. Voices of Experience is brought to you by the National Speakers Association. Now, here are your hosts, Stephen Iverson and Pilar Ortiz. October is here. Welcome to our October edition of BOE Voices of Experience. We are delighted to join you as you enjoy your daily walk, drive to an important meeting, or are waiting for a flight in any busy airport around the world. Welcome and thank you. Thank you for making BOE part of your monthly activities. We have prepared content for everyone, powerful interviews, direct information, and valuable takeaways with one idea in mind, improving your speaking business. We have key guests and an active conversation with many successful speakers that are going to share their knowledge with friendly tips, techniques that they've proven over and over. And just so you know, the Speaker Magazine theme for the month is branding, so we have some guests that complement that topic. And in this edition, we have some interviews that are going to be available on video. Kelly McDonald and Beth Zeesness came to our production studio, and those interviews will be available if you'll check on the icon at the bottom of the app to watch those videos. Let's get started. When explaining the value of what we do as speakers and trainers, we often focus too much on the what and not enough on the why. We share client lists of whom we have worked with, client testimonials and pictures of us in front of hundreds of people. But guess what? Most clients don't care. That's right, they don't care. Because what they often want to know is what will their people be able to do differently after our talk? And how will that affect their bottom line? In other words, they need numbers. So what about if we learn practices that are going to make it easier for us to explain to the corporate clients the ROI they can expect when using our services? I've got to be honest with you, Pilar. Okay, again. I am, again, I'm going to be, yeah, I am not a numbers guy. I understand the numbers, and I know it's important to pay attention to the numbers, but when we start talking numbers, I just get a little lost. Welcome to my world. Oh, you too? Mm -hmm. That's why we surround ourselves with people who love the numbers. And yes, especially for our clients that they love numbers. They do, because that's that's their world. It's their language. So we need to learn from the best. That's why we have Andrew Tarvin, human engineer, a guy who loves numbers, to help us figure out the language that our customers speak. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to come and talk to, to people about numbers at any time. Numbers and humor and mm-hmm. engineers. So uh, tell us about that. You work as an engineer and being efficient, but then you start working with people and that wasn't really working very good. Mm-hmm. What change you had to make in order for that to work? Yeah, so I realized as I started working more with people that, you know, you can't be efficient with people. You can be efficient <laughs> with computers, you can be efficient with processes. You can't really be efficient with people because they have emotions and feelings and all that stuff. Uh, but instead, you have to be effective. 
and so that changes the way that we interact with people. And so, uh, yeah, what the, one of the big things about being effective is communicating to them in a way that is relevant and relatable to them. And so depending on who you're talking to, your message may change slightly to say what's going to be relevant and relatable to that person. And how numbers help to do that? Yeah, because if we think about our corporate clients, a lot of them are interested in numbers. It's one thing for us to say, oh, we work with, you know, we provide a lot of value. It's another thing to say this is a specific value that we provide. I do a lot of work with uh, on topic talking about humor in the workplace, and so no one really thinks of humor as a bad thing. They think of it as kind of a nice to have. But mm -hmm. then you start to look at the studies and you realize that 83% of Americans are stressed out at work, 55% of Americans are unsatisfied with their jobs, and 47% of Americans struggle to stay happy. That leads to 70% of the workforce being disengaged, costing the U.S. economy up to about $500 billion in lost productivity every <laughs> single year. Speaking about numbers. Right. I track those, though. Yeah, I understand exactly. So you understand them, and now you start to think, oh, humor isn't really a nice to have, it's a must have, because it can impact those things. So people use humor more productive, less stressed, happier, etc. And so you're starting to get people's attention because you talk about the lost productivity as opposed to, well, let's make things more fun. Corporate clients don't necessarily care about that. They care about, oh, how is this going to either save me money or make me more money or maybe do both. And I would imagine some of the corporate clients, if they just saw a web page or a one sheet about a speaker who talks about the need for humor in the workplace, they go, well, you know, I don't want everybody walking around laughing because then they're not going to be working. So you helped them to begin to see that having the humor in the workplace actually got them more engaged. Absolutely. So you can look at the studies around it. And so in one study, they found that executives who used humor are, were actually paid more. And that uh, result was positively correlated. So the more humor an executive hues, the more they are actually paid. And so you can start to see the actual tremendous value around it. And there's tons of studies like that. 98% of CEOs prefer a job candidate with a sense of humor. 81% of employees say a fun workplace would make them more productive. You can also look at some of the numbers around those and see that, yeah, again, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. With the way that we worked, the fact that we've shifted from an industrial age into a knowledge economy, it changes the way that we have to do that work. And it's the same with any other topic because it's quantifying our value and quantifying what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just humor. I mean, that's obviously the area that I'm passionate about, but it's about the, the value of numbers is about quantifying what we do and explaining it in terms that our clients care about. So if you think about, if you have a program that, say, increases employee engagement, and you understand that, so there's $500 billion in lost productivity every single year, 70% of the workforce, you do the math, that turns into about $4,672 per disengaged employee. So if your program, regardless of what it's about, increases engagement, in the workplace and say you do that for a hundred people you're starting to quantify the value of a hundred times an average of forty six hundred dollars that's the value that you're looking to provide and that's true for any of the types of thing that you're doing I just happen to do humor so how do we then communicate the value that we bring to uh, to those that are are making the decisions uh, how do we ex express the ROI yeah, so there's a couple of ways to kind of express it. I mean, one is talking about the numbers, you know, theoretically that are out there. There's tons of studies backed by places like Gallup and Forbes and that kind of stuff where you can find these studies and you can extrapolate that information. If we know that the average turnover cost for employee employee leaving a company is between 20 to 150% of that person's salary, we know that the average salary in the United States is around $44,000. For a lot of our clients, it's probably going to be a lot higher, right? But if we know that, 
that we take the baseline cost to replace an employee at 20%, then it's $8,864 to replace an employee. If you reduce turnover based on your program, that's the number that you can do. You can also look at parallel examples from us as other speakers, what have people been able to do? And so if one person has shown that a program can increase you know, productivity by 31%, then we can reference that number to say these are the studies that are out there. And the most important one, the one that I'm encouraging people to do is that we want to start to capture this actual value. If we can set up things where we're doing surveying pre and post to see what the results are, setting up control groups, that kind of thing, we can start to change the story about us as speakers, not just as, hey, this person is motivation, but this person and this group of people is driving value. And saying then numbers, dollars, values, places that you have been instead of, oh, I have done this many you put a number in that. Exactly, yeah. A lot of us say, you know, oh, I've, I've worked with a number of organizations. Zero is a number. Right? <laughs> so it doesn't really mean much. But we if you say, I've number. worked with a hundred plus organizations, or I've been to this many places, I've been in 45 states, or I've worked in 13 countries, or whatever you know the numbers are, it adds credibility to what we do. And I think one of the things is that people tend to be a little bit scared of numbers, but numbers can also be beautiful. Uh, the, the number 2.4 billion is a beautiful number because <laughs> that's the number of seconds the average human life lives. Like if you take the average lifetime of 78 years and quantify that in seconds, 2.4 billion, that can be a beautiful number. The number 177 billion is a beautiful number because that was the global spend on formal training programs in 2013. It's like, hey, I'll take a small percentage of 177 billion, and you guys can have some of that, but how Absolutely. do we also grow it? So numbers can be intimidating, but they can also be beautiful and impactful. Now we like numbers, Steven. Now I'm starting I'm like, to like yeah, the numbers. I'm like, of course we like numbers. And I would like to close with a question that Andrew asked at the beginning of this conversation before we started recording. How much value you provided last year? Do you have that question for some of your audiences and some of your clients, what is the answer? I'm curious about it. How much value you provided last year? People know? It's, it's, well, it's a question that I think is very important for us to try to drive towards. And for me, there's a very high theoretical number. So it's, I, you know, one way that I can quantify it is maybe that number is 40 million. I don't know. I did a TEDx talk last year. It's been seen by 40,000 people. If you assume the average uh, employee output based on uh, numbers for the entire U.S. is $100,000 uh, as far as yearly output, not salary, but the value that they provide and say they increase their productivity by 1% as a result of that, that would be a $40 million you know, value creation. Obviously, that's a lot of extrapolation, a lot of what ifs in that. I'm sure a good number of those views were my mom just kind of watching in our oh, movie. Yeah. But we start to think about that type of value and you can see the tremendous impact that we as speakers, uh, trainers, consultants, coaches, that kind of thing can provide. Well, I want to thank you because you really have challenged us to to get beyond just the uh, the theoretical and the nice slick marketing pieces and start thinking about the true value that we're bringing to our customers and our clients. Absolutely. And numbers, the language of business. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. consulting world is overloaded with speakers and experts selling their services based on secret formulas, proprietary processes, and strategic in-depth analysis. All sounds good. Once you are in the door, these elements are critical for creating measurable business results. But if you are not getting your foot in the door in the first place, 
Hmm, those transformative consulting practices are worthless. And to get your foot in the door, you've got to create demand for what you offer. Kristen Brown talks about how critical it is that we create a strategic, personal, and professional brand that synergizes our speaking, content, social media, PR, experiences, and all other relevant business boosters. And when we do it right, we're going to be able to turn our event planners, HR staff leaders, even audience members into potential high-paying consulting clients. Kristen, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you about branding. <laughs> branding, holistic brand experience. There is a system. There are some steps that you always share in order to become a magnet and not a chaser. So let's talk about that branding, how to do it right. Well, a lot of people think brand is your logo, your tagline, your elevator pitch, and those things are important, but those aren't your brand. Your brand is what attracts your customer to you, that emotional connection that keeps them coming to you over and over again so they want to hang out again next time and open their wallet, of course, eventually to buy from you. <laughs> and remember you and six rem months down the road like, oh, I remember exactly. her. Memorability is the is the key thing when, it, when you're creating a brand. And speaking about that, you use a costume in one of your breakout sessions. Tell me about that. Yeah, <laughs> so I have this flamingo costume that I've worn for Halloween many years in a row and a lot of people know me for this Halloween costume and so I decided I would pull it out on stage here at NSA and <laughs> use it to demonstrate how powerful your presence can be. And I use the example of Lady Gaga that she's built an entire brand on wearing weird stuff. And, you know, being that gimmicky is extreme, but if you have something that you're doing and that you're known for, if you always wear a hat, if you're the guy that's always super laid back in jeans, uh, if you always wear a beautiful scarf, if you have a tagline that you're always saying on stage, some sort of catchphrase, use that because that can become a memorable part of your brand. But always understanding and thinking about being memorable for the right reasons. Exactly. Not for the wrong ones, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about experience, exposure, and excellence. Let's start with experience because these are the three key components of that brand. Yes, yes. When you're trying to create a holistic experience for your customers, for the market you want to attract, you can't just say, well, I'm going to have a cool website, or, oh, here's a really neat brochure, or, oh, I'm a speaker. You have to really connect with them mentally, emotionally, at the heart level, at the soul level, in many, many ways. So you need to be able to say, okay, here are many ways that I'm putting myself out into the world, and... I hope it resonates with you in different ways and then you'll become memorable that way. And it has to feel good yeah. to you too. It's not, oh, I want to do it because it works, but it, you need to be proud yeah. of it. It has to be authentic to you. So I always tell people before they dive into this, these three things of experience, exposure, and excellence, to come up with the three words that they want to become known for. And those three words can help to drive everything they put out. So if you want to be known as happy, empowering, and fun, then everything you put out should help to raise you up as those three words. Maybe you want to be known as powerful, driven, and aggressive. Sometimes that's something you may mm -hmm. want to be known as. Then those are the kinds of things you should be putting out into the world. And what type of words are we talking about? This is not about the topic. This is not about your niche. This is not about your category expertise. This is words 
about your personality? Yes, this is words about you. How do you want to be known, not just at work and professionally, but also personally? They sh you shouldn't have three different words for, oh, my family knows me as this, this, and this, but at work I'm this, this, and this. Because then... Which sometimes happens. It does. Ha it happens all the time. But when you do that, then you are really creating lack of memorability because you're different every time people interact with you and you're not creating that stickiness in in our minds that we need to get to know you, get to like you, get to trust you as someone who's going to show up the same way over and over that you know, okay, if I pay you right now for X book or service or speaking, if I pay you again in six months, is it going to be the same? I want that same, it doesn't have to be the same topic, but I want the same experience. What would you say, because a lot of speakers and coaches and trainers, they have a lot of topics and a lot of different areas of expertise. And I understand this is about you, but sometimes it's a little different or you just have to find those three words that are going to work no matter what because it's about you. Well, when you're attracting someone initially, you're going to attract people because of the emotional connection. So they're going to like you because you're sweet, or they may not like you because you're sweet. Mm -hmm. You want to be authentic to who you really are, so you attract the right people that it feels good to work with. So this is beyond what you do. It's, it's who you are. You do. It's who you are. And then you can flex your topics, your services, your books, and things like that beyond those words. Wonderful. What is the biggest barrier for people? A lot of times we see all these things, experience, exposure, excellence, and where to start, what to do. It's overwhelming. There is no shortage of books, coaches, training that you can get to learn to do anything to grow your business. Social media, PR, building your brand, marketing. There's no. You can learn how to do all of that for free online or paid things that you can get any day of the week. And that overwhelm comes when we think we have to do all those things. We don't need to do all those things. As long as your market is clear, you know exactly who you serve, you know exactly what that market needs, and you know exactly where they hang out, those are the only places that you should be worried about. So if your market is on YouTube and that's where they do their searching, my eight-year-old, she doesn't go to the internet and search things, she goes to YouTube to search terms. So if you're serving the youth market, get on YouTube and don't worry about Facebook, don't worry about some of the other channels. If you're serving a market that only hangs out on Facebook or Pinterest, don't worry about Twitter, don't worry about LinkedIn. People get so overwhelmed by this social media and all the things that you can do, you don't need to be everywhere. Just be where your market is, forget the rest. That can take away a lot of the overwhelm. The same goes with our personal lives. I mean, we have so much going on that stresses us out. You know, there's relationships that we have. We have kids. We have health challenges. We have we, you know, loss of loved ones. We've got debt, divorce. Those are inevitable things that many, many of us will deal with for the rest of, of our lives. Us, All exactly. of us, exactly. And those things can pull your focus from your business. So you really need to say, okay, how am I going to maintain this professional momentum even when your personal life is dragging you down or vice versa and vice versa yeah. because that's life exactly so is be ready for those peaks and downs mm -hmm. yeah if it, it, entrepreneurs really need to be ready for the roller coaster because failure part of the game <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and you ended up being an entrepreneur and speaker 
um, years ago because a life change event in your own life. Yeah, yeah. I was in corporate America for about 15 years. I was in a corporate leadership role. I was married and had a healthy baby daughter, lived in a nice house with a dog and 60-year plan. And then unexpectedly about eight years ago, my young husband, he was 30 years old, died of a heart attack in his sleep. And he had just been given a clean bill of health. He was a tall, skinny, former college athlete. So it was just a complete fluke that it shook up my entire world, not just losing him, but losing my 60-year plan. <laughs> and, and your safety and yeah. your stability. It was it was not fun. I can talk about it now because it's been eight years and I don't, don't have, won't lose it crying. But then it became even worse because a couple weeks after he passed away, my boss called, who I loved. He was just an amazing, empowering boss. And he said he was going to be leaving the area of the company that we were working in and I was going to be getting a new boss. She came from outside the company. She wanted me to work long hours and travel. And she was a nighttime caller and emailer. So I had this double whammy of stress and just knew that I had to find a way to still serve the corporate world because I loved working and I wanted to keep working, but I couldn't do the long hours and the travel anymore being a newly single parent. So over the the course of two three years I slowly transitioned from full-on corporate to starting my own company happy hour effect and now I'm a speaker and an author and doing fun stuff and keep working on that transition and changes and yep. growing thank you for sharing your expertise with us it's all about branding ourselves but being true to our personalities yeah, thank you very much thank you for having me Welcoming to VOE, our guest, Kelly McDonald, an expert in consumer trends and marketing, especially understanding how to sell to people not like you. Not like me? Who is like you? I don't know. <laughs> Let's find out. What do you mean well, by that, Kelly? What do you mean? Because we are not like each other. Well, that's exactly Welcome. it. That's exactly it. Nobody is like anybody anymore. And in business, we tend to gravitate to the path of least resistance and try to go to where the easier sale is. We don't consciously think about that, but we try, we try to sell to people just like us, or we try to sell people in the same way that makes sense to us. And that typically means that you're doing that with people just like you, but increasingly you've got business constituents who are older than you, younger than you, a different gender than you, a different generation than you. They may have different communication preferences, different priorities. And we increasingly have to work harder to figure out how to connect with somebody who's not like us. So what you mean is beyond the ethnicity, the country of origin, the language, the accent, the gender? Absolutely, Pilar. My definition of diversity is a lot broader than just racial and ethnic, and that's why I call it people not like you. Yeah, when I say the D word diversity, people tend to think racial and ethnic, and that's super important. And in my business we spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's not the only way that we can be diverse. My definition of diversity is any way you can be different from me. So for example, if you have children and I don't, we're going to be very different. We could be the same age. We could be the same gender. We could live in the same zip code, make the same household income. All of these demographic things would make us look the same. But if you've got kids and I don't, in every meaningful way, we're going to be different. And so that's my definition of diversity. And you know what I talk about is not just racial and ethnic, but religious differences, political differences, rural versus metro. I mean, someone who lives in a loft in Manhattan is very different than someone who lives on a farm or a ranch in West Texas. Um, parents, uh, life stage, you know, uh, 
new mom or a new dad is in a different place than a retiree or a college student or an empty nester, um, cultural and linguistic, pet owners. I mean, you name it. <laughs> Military, <laughs> pet owners. I swear it's a cult. A dog, oh, we've got a dog. dog. That's right. I don't have a no. dog. See, here we go into so the dog world. Different. So, Kelly, everybody's, everybody's different. Yeah. So how do I sell to somebody who is not like me? The most important thing to do is to find out what they value because people spend money on what they value. For example, um, if you take your plastic bottle of water when you finish drinking it and you toss it into the recycling bin, that's a small little action that you're doing, but it tells me something about you. Mm -hmm. It tells me about your values and that maybe you care a little bit about the environment. You're trying to do what you can. You're trying to do your part. It's a little thing, but tells me a lot. If you homeschool your kid versus putting your kid in public school, that tells me a lot about you. So if I can figure out what your values are, I promise you that I can get into your wallet because people spend money on what they value. So it's about asking smart questions with your clients, your meeting planners, your speakers, bureaus, whoever it might be and saying, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your concern for your conference or your meeting this year? What are you trying to do differently? What are you hearing from your members? You know, and what are their issues? How, and then you can tailor as a speaker, you can tailor your responses to address those concerns and meet their values. And then suddenly they're looking at you going, how did you know this is what we were looking exactly. for? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. No, it's, it's, it's honestly not that hard. It's just that as speakers, we get so locked into, here's who I am, here's my topic, buy it, it's good. Mm. And you can't make that connection for wanting that topic until you've made the connection on why you should care about that topic in the first place. It's one of the things that I call Fab, features, attributes, and benefits. People don't buy features, which is what we tend to do as speakers, is talk about, here's my topic and it's great. Me, 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 here. Right, we, what people buy is benefits. So the example that I give to illustrate this is, my car has Bluetooth. Bluetooth is the feature, okay? That my car has this feature called Bluetooth. The attribute of Bluetooth is hands-free technology, but the benefit is safety. That's right. If I have hands-free, I can talk and both hands are on the wheel. And what my, so nobody is buying Bluetooth because they want Bluetooth, they're buying it because it gives them a safer ride. So it's different ways of understanding those differences by observing, by asking the right diagnostic questions. Absolutely. And by listening. Yes, and, and by providing a solution that actually makes sense for your client. Once again, people don't buy topics, they buy solutions. And there are some basic principles that will help us in the process. Let's talk about them. How to be relevant. How to be relevant. Once again, being relevant is about understanding what your client wants, and if you possibly can, give it to them, then do so. But you can't presume what your client wants. You have to ask the questions, you have to do your homework, you have to talk to people, you have to learn where their priorities and pressures come from. And most people are happy to tell you. If you have a conversation with a client and say, what are you trying to accomplish with this, with this conference that's different than last year? Where are you going with this? What's the direction? They're not gonna withhold that information. They're happy to share it. And then if you say, now that I understand that you're trying to get more young people to your conference, or now that I understand that you're trying to have have more interaction or you're trying to get more panel discussions did you know that i facilitate panel discussions you know i mean what I, but you're then provide you know i mean you're yeah. providing a solution but you can't guess you can't guess you have to find out so understanding what they value finding out what the relevancy is now leads you to becoming their resource right 
And how do you leverage that to really get that decision maker to say yes to you instead of no, I'm still looking? If you're providing this, the right solution, if you've done that those things correctly and you've provided a solution and you've said, I have a way that can help you accomplish those things, instead of saying, I have a topic, say, I have a way that can help you accomplish those things. And here's how we can do it. Here's how I see it happening. These are the ways that have been really effective in the past with doing this kind of thing. And here's where I think we could take this with you. Does that sound good? Then your client, now you're not, now you're having a dialogue and a discussion. You're not selling anymore. You're coming together to mutually work on, on the right solution for a conference. You're not selling anymore. And you are not selling. You are helping. You're, yeah. you are Pilar, helping. that is exactly my final point. My <laughs> final point is helping beats selling. If you help me, you will sell me. You can tweet that right there, right? That's right. You don't need to sell me if you help me. If you help me, you become the expert. And if you help me, then I have trust in you, I want you, and I'm going to look at you as a guide. And so if you help me, you will sell me. You don't have to sell anymore. You just have to help. And I know you work towards results, and you have seen better results when people start doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it honestly makes everything easier when you stop selling and you stop pitching and you just start talking to people and helping and trying to work together with a solution. They are not only more likely to hire you, they are more invested in you as a speaker. You're not just a vendor. You're not just this hired person that's going to come up, show up, do your thing. You're part of the team now. It suddenly becomes easier. I love that. No longer working through the diversity issues, but now working on their issues. Absolutely. Who doesn't want that? We all want that. We all want to market and sell to people that are not like you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank Kelly. You, Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. to achieve goals with laser focus and precision? Are you ready to crush those personal or and business goals? How to do it faster and effectively? Brian Moran, co-author of the 12-week year, will share some of those techniques with us. It's about doing in 12 weeks what most people do in 12 months. Establishing goals is important, but what really matters is not the setting of the goals, but rather the achievement of the goals, how to execute them, how to implement them. And the bottom line is that successful people execute better. Well, I have Brian Moran with me right now, and we're going to spend a little time talking about a, a process of business growth. And Brian, you didn't really start as a speaker, you started more as a consultant, and then all of a sudden, the speaking became a big part of your model. Uh, walk me through what, what happened. What was the catalyst of making that occur? Yeah, happy to. Yeah, we started, uh, I started as a consultant, had a business partner, and, and we, we were doing big projects, and a number of them dried up. And we said, you know what, this business model doesn't work very well because the selling cycle on that's a couple of years. So I had started to get um, inquiries to speak. People would say, well, do you speak? Could you do a keynote for us? Well, yeah, of course I could. And so that, that kind of grew organically. But there was a point in there when we said strategically, we need to focus on this because this gets us out in front of clients. It allows us the opportunity then to, to sell the consulting after that and or the back end stuff. So so when we did that, the business really changed. It, it started, and now it didn't happen immediately, but it was at that point, you could, you could really notice that that's what changed our business. Okay. And at one point, it 
if I understand this, it's shifted to the point that uh, your calendar started to fill up pretty good because of something. What was that one thing that was the the turning point? Yeah. Uh, really, it was a, a, a book, and so as a as a speaker, and I think one of the important things you can do is get content out there. And so we had this concept: we were going to a conference, we were actually going to be a vendor at it, and we were looking for something to give away, some marketing piece. And then I had thought about writing a book, so we we wrote this short format book, and we wrote it in twelve weeks, and it was called Periodization: Twelve Weeks to Breakthrough, <laughs> and it was it was our concept that we had borrowed from athletic training on how to accomplish more in less time. And the big gamble at the time, and we had no money, it was, you know, do we print 50 of these? Do we print 100? Because we were self-publishing. And so we gambled, we print 100. Go to the conference. We weren't sure. We, we thought we're probably going to come back with 99 of them. But but all of them got sold or given away. I, I don't even remember what it was. Probably a combination. And in the next five, six years, you know, that, that initial offering created 100,000 copies sold. And then uh, Wiley, publisher out of New York, found, found us and came to us and wanted to publish the book. So we got a chance to expand it, and then we published it through them, and it went New York Times bestseller for us. But it was that book getting out in those hands. It, it kind of went it went old school viral, if if you will. With okay, a, you know what I mean? Yeah. You had this paper copy book, uh, but it, there was I think one of the keys to that it was short format. You know, most people don't have time to read. Most people don't read. So we didn't fill it with all the stories and everything else. It was just the concept, and it resonated with folks. And so uh, a leader or manager would get a hold of it, and they'd buy it for their people. Someone else might get a hold of it and buy it for their spouse, and, and that's the way that thing went. So it started very quickly in that, that the, all, the bulk of our business came either through that book or through referrals. So now the business is taking off. Yep. But it's not just about the book and it's not just about the speaking. It's about something else that you do to help those concepts become reality for your customers. How are you leveraging that in your business? Yeah. So our, our concept is called the 12-week year. And it's how to accomplish more in 12 weeks than most do in 12 months. Because what we found is that in an, in an annual environment, which most people operate in, they set annual goals and plans. They break them down quarterly and monthly. But there's still this illusion of lots of time. So it's easy to put things off. And so we work in the context of every 12 weeks as a year. And we apply that in our own company. And, and, and so on the speaking side of it, every 12 weeks, we, we, we set a goal around how much revenue we want to book in new speaking. Doesn't matter when I deliver it. I don't have to deliver it in that 12 weeks. But we're going to focus on the marketing aspect of how do we get X number of dollars booked in speaking. And we do that every 12 weeks. And then there's a set of streamlined tactics you know, the actions we have to take to accomplish that goal, we, we look from, we call them the critical few. What's the least amount of things we can do to hit that goal? And what happens is in, we use the system to do that, the 12-week year system, but it keeps us focused. Where most folks, when you've got an annual plan, right, you start out overwhelmed because it's 12 months of stuff in the plan, and then you end up diffused. You make a little bit of progress in a lot of areas. So, so the whole concept is, is let's be great at a few things versus mediocre at many. And that's how we apply, that's how we built our business, really. So you're doing that every 12 weeks? Yeah. Yep. Is it the same select few every 12 weeks? Are you just renewing it? It, it may be different. It may be different. So, so we treat the 12 weeks as a year. Okay. Right? There aren't four of those in the year. That's the year. And so just like most people do on an annual basis, we sit down and we say, okay, what, what happened the last 12 weeks? 
what worked, what didn't work, what's different in the marketplace, where's our practice at, where's our business at, and then we set the goal and we build out the tactics. And, and so there's always, there's probably some stuff that's the same, oftentimes in one 12 week to the next, but there's also stuff that's probably new tactically because our business is changing, it's growing, it's evolving. Now, if you were to sit down with a one of the members that we have who's the working professional who's got a pretty good business going, but is just almost at that point where they've done everything they know to do, yeah. and they're looking for that one thing that'll push them up so that the calendar's filling like your experience was, yeah. what would it be that you'd say? I don't know that there's one thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wish there was, you know, there's it because it's different for everybody in their market. I think one of the things I would say, a couple things that made a difference for us is one, we focused in a very niche market. So that's how we got the referral business. Because if we had been all over in terms of our customer, it wouldn't have happened. You knew. So one would be look at, are you niche enough? And, and are, you, um, are you getting all the exposure you can within that niche? You know, are, are people are people seeing you in multiple venues? Are they are they bumping into you? You know, in this trade journal and that you know that advertisement here and this piece of content there, and so um, because it's it's difficult to to reach everybody. So pick a niche, dominate the niche, make sure you're 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 working on exposure in that niche. So I'd focus the 12-week plan around that, right? I'd set the 12-week goal around, okay, here's what we want to close in speaking business. And now that tactically, the things we need to do to get there is kind of, if we're not in this niche, figure out the niche, figure out who the players are, figure out the people. The, the other thing that Stephen made a difference for me is that we ended up getting um, contracts for multiple gigs with certain companies. So where in the past I'd get one gig here, I'd get one gig there, I'd get another, right. Right now what's different is we have um, specific client companies that I might get 15, 20, 25 either keynotes, half day, one day trainings from. And, and that's, that's been a huge difference. Now, what made that happen for you to go from one to multiple within the same client? A big piece of that was early on we were we were marketing at the wrong level, I think. So now we're talking to the president or the VP of sales or someone who can make the decision uh, and they've seen our content somewhere, so we're not going in cold. They're calling us and a big piece of that is, okay, I can drop in and do one event, but what do you want to get out of this? I mean, why are you hiring me anyways? What's the change you want to make happen? And that opens up the conversation to talk about, well, you know, we might want to think about then a series of of workshops or events. And, and I think that's been the key. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right. Appreciate right. it. Have you been in one of those NSA conferences or conventions and left totally confused because there are so many different ways and successful ways of approaching this business? Oh, yes, every time and every month, our correspondent, Lori Guest, has two sides of the same coin with two guests. On this edition, the brain, the logic, or the heart, the emotion. Where is the decision power after all? I'm here with two of my favorite branding experts posing one question and allowing us to hear two sides of the same coin. Are buying decisions rational or emotional? First up to share his side of the coin is branding expert Bruce Trakel. 
Thanks, Lori. It's quite simple. People buy based on emotion. They justify their purchase with fact. Now, I can already hear you arguing and saying, no, no, no. People know what they're buying. They care. It's price. It's function. It's how good you are as a speaker. Okay, let me just tell you something. That's just not true. People buy based on how a purchase makes them look and feel. Everybody answers to someone else. Spouses answer to their husbands or wives. Kids answer to their parents. Buying professionals answer to their bosses, to their shareholders, to their CEOs. And what they care about is how a purchase makes them look and feel. Sure, you got to be good. If you can't provide the function, if the product can't do the job, nobody wants it. But just because it can doesn't mean you'll buy it. Think of that great restaurant in your neighborhood. Good food, good prices, nice atmosphere, and you go in there and you have a nice time. And then a few weeks later, you notice they're out of business. Why? They did a great job. The function was great, but they didn't provide something you wanted. That special something, that reason to take a date, that reason to take a spouse, that reason to take a potential client. And it's the same when you're looking for business. Customers purchase you, your time, your expertise because you make them look good and you make them feel good. And then you prove it when you deliver. Excellent. Thank you very much, Bruce. And now to share the other side of the coin is branding expert, Jerry O'Brien. Thank you. And and Bruce, those are great arguments. I don't necessarily disagree with you. I agree that people purchase on emotion and rational reasons. But the problem is, especially as speakers, we don't always have the rational reason backup that people need in order to make the decision. So I'll give you an example. So I used to be the brand manager of Coors Light, $2 billion beer brand in a flat light beer industry. And all the advertising in the industry was emotional. Party, party, woo, you're going to be beautiful if you drink this beer. Turns out it didn't get anyone to buy beer. We put some rational reasons into the buying behavior. We turned our liner of our can blue and people thought there was something special about the can. It gave them a rational reason to purchase. And Coors Light can sales, flat light beer industry went up 5% in the first year. In an emotional industry, we gave people a rational reason, and it changed the entire trajectory of Coors Light success for the last 10 years. In fact, it's the only light beer brand that has grown sales in the last five years. So as speakers, what we need to do is have what I call a because. We know that the meeting planner wants to hire us to make themselves look good. They want us to be a safe choice that when we get on stage, we're going to make them look good. We need to give them the because. I hired this guy because he is a agency branding expert who's on TV. I hired this guy because he's worked on billion dollar brands. We need as speakers to have a powerful rational because. Well, there you go. Proving again, there are always two sides to the same coin. Technology sometimes overwhelms us because there's so many things to choose from. And we have with us Beth Ziesness, who is your Your nerdy nerdy best best friend. friend. And she's going to help us figure out what would work best for us as business owners and speakers. Beth, welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. A lot to talk about because there are many different areas. We could go from travel, organization, sharing, where to start. Oh, you know, I think the big one for me is email overwhelm. Could you give us some quick tips on how to manage? Are there, is there an app for that? <laughs> is there an app for that? I always have a yes there. Good. That's the whole thing. Email is one of the best things that ever happened to mobile devices. 
email is one of the worst things that's ever happened to mobile <laughs> devices. It's just overwhelming. I mean, most of us just sit there and, and we start our email and we sigh because there's just so many things to get to. So use email triage. And there are a number of apps that'll do that automatically now. And the app Tinder, the dating app Tinder, that I'm sure nobody in here has heard of, it's where you have people and you swipe left for this and you swipe right for that. But these email triage apps, which many of you may already have on your phones, will let you just go through your inbox organizing as you go. So that by the time you sit back down to do your actual work, you've got everything that you really need to see kind of in your view. In addition to that, there's something called Microsoft Outlook app. Microsoft's come a long way. And the Outlook app, which is free, actually has the calendar inside the email. So not only can you read your email, but when someone says, hey, can we meet on Tuesday? You can look over there and the dog's not gonna bark, the doorbell's not gonna go, so you won't forget when you're looking at that time, and then you can go back and get that scheduling so done right there. everything in one place. You don't have to go back and forth from your calendar to your email. Right. Talk about efficiency. Perfect. That's great. What else with the email? Anything else that will help organize uh, deleting or saving or putting for later or read and then you unread like, oh. Well, one of my favorite apps to get rid of a whole bunch of emails is called unroll.me. That's the site you go to and you sign up for the service. And the main thing, the first thing it does is it helps you unsubscribe. But then there's a difference between spam and bacon. So we know what spam email is, right? Spam is like things we don't want. But bacon is things that we do want. Like every single speaker has a newsletter that is bacon. Everybody wants to read it. But when they come in like 95 at a time, all through the week, you just kind of get overwhelmed and you throw them all out. But with unroll.me, you can schedule a digest and put everything all together so that it comes in, you can go through, kind of see everything you want. You can even uh, put them like, coupon sites, you know, when you have sales and things like that, plus when you have valuable My information. Wife would like the coupon site. <laughs> exactly. And you can just kind of organize them in one place rather than having them pepper your email all day, clog it up, and then you just end up deleting them anyway. Oh, that's wonderful. Great tool. And I love the cards. These, how do you call them? The collector's cards. The collector's yes. cards. That is, uh, they complement your last book, your new book. And what it is for our listeners, because we have video here, it's a deck of cards with different tools in the different categories. So let's play a little bit. Let's pick some of those and so just talk all about. All of these cards have some kind of app or technology tool. So we're just gonna pull one from the deck and Pilar's gonna pick a card in each Let's card. say, so we are going to talk about Jing. Jing. So Jing is one of my favorite tools. It's a little bit old and it's made by a company called TechSmith. And TechSmith, some speakers might know, does Camtasia, which is a very high quality video recording synchronizing tool that you can use to do online presentations and put together videos. But Jing is an incredibly lightweight little tool that you can use with it. And it does quick screen captures and quick screen casts. So here's how you use it. If you just need to tell someone that your name for the next presentation on their site is misspelled, and you need to go, the typo's right here, and put a big arrow, then you can snap a picture of that screen, put an arrow, and then with one click, you can send it off to the web as a link, and then pop it into an email and say, 
just look at this and get rid of that typo, please. So it takes all of the extra efforts of take a picture and then find the arrow and bring it in and try to size it into, it does it all in one click? It does it all for you very, very quickly. There are a number of tools that do that, but Jing is my favorite because it's the cutest too. It's just a little sun and it sits up <laughs> on the cute. side. It has these little octopi, little arms. It's very cute. Let's try one. All right. One do you want to play? Go. Yeah, I'll play. play. <laughs> okay, here is Steven picking his cards. So choose one from go. Okay, so let's ask Beth about Isu. Issue. 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 It's Spell it again. I S S U U. Issue. So you create a beautiful handout, PowerPoint handout, or you create a bro wonderful brochure of yourself. And then you send it to someone, you say, download that brochure. And when they get it, all the beautiful work you've done into the design kind of goes away because when they get the PDF, they look at one page and then the next page, you know, it's no longer a thing. It's just a long PDF. Well, issue, I call it a mystical magical site because you just take any PDF or any document, you upload it to there and it turns it into one of those flipping catalog magazines oh. for free mm -hmm. automatically. Did you say free? Free. That's what I specialize in is the free and the bargain because no one has any money to spend on all these things and you don't have to. What is your favorite tool for organizing, organization? Organization. So it, it, when you talk about organization, there are a couple of avenues you could go to. When, you, when I'm talking about document organization, I'm a Dropbox girl. So Dropbox to me has so many add-ins, plug-ins, and organization features that allows me to keep all of my documents, all of my things ready to share, ready to organize, and, and I just put them in there or I have automations to put things in there for me and then everything is there. When you're talking about project organization, to-do lists and things like that, my new favorite tool is called Trello. So Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O. T-R-E-L-L-O. Yes, so Trello is both a to-do list manager so you can do your own personal lists on there or it's a project management tool. So you can have a team who's working, let's say you're rolling out a new website. You can have a team work together and know who needs to do what, what the deadlines are, how things are gonna work. You can store all your documents there. There's another tool that's more, uh, maybe more well-known called Basecamp in that area. And that was kind of the father of the project management tools. But Trello is organized via cards, like these cards. <laughs> oh. But cards, cards are a very hip, very cool way to bring information together because cards on our phones let us flip through the cards and get the information and cards on the computer let us reorganize the organization. So Trello to me kind of brings all that together. Very good. Let's do one more in the category of security. Oh, <laughs> I love talking about this, but really? it makes me so sad because your passwords suck. Maybe not they yours. They're so easy. By the day to their name. And you have five of them. Just five. And and you haven't changed them since 2013. How did you know? Because that's everybody's story. I bet you have a password in there that's from 1999. 
You can tell me. No, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, you're not He's from tell 1998. Me. So many speakers, <laughs> the last thing they're thinking about is their security. You know, they're running their businesses. They're so they have so many things going on, and security is so critical. So what? you need is a password management system of some kind because for every single site you visit you need a unique password only for that site and it's got to be an unguessable one i used lastpass lastpass the reason it's called lastpass is because they say it's the last password you're ever going to have to remember and you create one giant password and then every single other password you have will live behind the uh, firewall now uh, I could go into a lot of details, but you know, if you need this, look it up, and most of you need something like this. A lot of times I get the question, what if LastPass gets hacked? Is it safe? And the answer is no, nothing is safe. LastPass did get hacked, but the consensus is that their security systems held, and that if you had taken a modicum, 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 that word, mm -hmm. of care in creating your giant password as well as taking care of your other stuff, you were fine. So people still have trust in it. It's an international one, but there are several. There's RoboForm, LastPass, One Password, and then Dashlane, all kinds of really high-ranking ones. But you need something. Yes. Awesome. And this is why Beth is your, your nerdy, nerdy best, best friend. friend. Thank you very much. Everything ready for the next NSA event this coming November. Sierra Modro and Phil Gerbachak are co-chairing the Tech Lab. We don't want to miss it. Let's join them. This fall at the Tech Lab, I am so excited for so many things. And rather than just gush all over you, Sierra, I want you to start and tell everyone why you're excited about the Tech Lab. One of the biggest reasons that I'm excited about Tech Lab is the expertise that we've managed to assemble in one place. These people are the top in their particular fields, and they're going to be coming to not just talk to us, but show us specifically how to implement the tools and strategies that are going to impact our bottom line and really take our business to the next level. That is awesome. I'm really looking forward to that as well. And I'm also looking forward to the fact that they're going to be sharing those tools that they do in their business. And then we get time hands on to do it in our business. So many times we run away from these conferences and conventions and workshops and things and are like, oh my goodness, I have so much to do and I don't have any <laughs> time to do it. So the fact that we get some hands on is going to be great, Sierra. I completely agree. I mean, I know know that out of various conventions I've gone to, I come home with like five pages of notes and three weeks worth of work. And it never actually happens because face it, life happens instead. So what we're doing at the tech lab, we're going to give you the opportunity to do it right there, get it done. And then when you come home, you can already start seeing how this is going to make your life easier, improve your, your YouTube presence, improve your PowerPoint, show you how to create new online learning systems. All of these are the types of topics and ideas that we're going to be talking about at Tech Lab and implementing while we're there. 
Absolutely. Now, whether you're a beginner or whether you're super advanced, we have something for you. We've put together some fundamentals, we've put together some intermediates, and we put together some advanced stuff. So regardless of where you are, you're going to get actionable tips that you can use right away in your business to make measurable impact. In fact, we think by the time the first day is done, you're going to be saying, wow, I can't believe the amazing sessions, the amazing things that I've done for my business. Last month in our first interview with Brian Walter, CSP, CPAE, and NSA President-Elect, he shared with us how to use videos during our presentations. If you have not heard it, make sure that you go back to the September edition to have all the information. Second round with Brian to discover different type of videos to use during our presentations and if the quality is not very, very good, how to make them look good on the big screen. Here we go. What other sources of videos can we use without spending these tons of money in production or hiring production crews? Great, great. So what we've been talking about with commercials are what I call as-is videos. As-is videos, you know, so it's already produced. You're using them as-is in your, in your presentation. There's another category uh, that I like to call by-you videos. A by-you video, meaning this is a video by you that's about the client or about the topic or about something, mm-hmm. but it's by you. This could be super low um, uh, production values. Uh, for example, I'm a huge fan of Eric Chester, CSP CPAE, one of the you know, living legends within our association. He goes to franchise conventions or, or large companies that employ millennials. And what he does is he takes out his little camera and he interviews millennials and he edits together these really short clips. And then during his presentation, he'll say, let's see what Trevor thinks about how fairly he's compensated. And that comes out like a 10 second clip and then he stops and the audience is like, (gasps) because they're hearing the real thing. And again, that costs him nothing. He he can do some light editing, but it's like, I don't know, he's probably using his phone for all I know, but he's able to do that. So he's he's making it, it's by Eric, but it's about them, about their world. And that's a really powerful thing. So you use 90 seconds, 50 seconds, it gives you a break, longer videos. What is the right? Uh, The right video is never do anything over two minutes. You can cover a huge amount of information in two minutes. The sweet spot is about 75 seconds. It's a little over a minute. We were trained that what 30 seconds and 60 seconds feels like because as long as we've been alive, there have been TV and radio commercials in 30 seconds and 60 seconds. So that's about what are the story arc of whatever that commercial is. So pretty much, there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. So if you're showing a video, it's like somewhere 60 to 75 seconds feels about right. Or if you can go really short, 30 seconds feels about right to the North American viewer. I have a concern about the quality. The mm-hmm. way it looks on that big screen is not like it looks on my little Mac screen. Mm-hmm. Are there some tips on how we can deal with that when we don't have all the wonderful technology to clean it up? Absolutely. When we're when you think about so much of the source of our videos come from mobile devices now. 
I was like, oh, wait, I'm going to get my iPhone 6 Plus and we're doing, we're doing photos and we're doing video clips from that. And it looks great on our phone. And then we put it on the big screen and we blow it up way beyond what it was intended to do. And it looks, the technical term is super crappy. <laughs> Very technical. So what do I do with super crappy video? You shrink it down. You literally shrink down the size of the screen. Now, here's a way to think, think about this. When you go to YouTube... How big is the YouTube video actually? It's like about 20% of the total screen size of that web page. Now, you, they, they hide it. You can go to the, you can click it full screen, but when you do, you always go, ugh, ugh, and then you click to shrink it back down because most video doesn't look good full screen. So the, the crappier the video, the smaller it should be. You make it kind of like a little puppy. Oh, it's so cute. It's such a cute little video. That's what you want to do. Now, the question then is, will that make visual sense in a live presentation. Here's this big giant screen behind me and the video is only a fraction of that size. So what you need to do is you need to create a visual context for it. The simplest and easy thing is to, on your PowerPoint slide, click here, I'm gonna show a video, turn that into a black slide. You hit right click, format background, click black, it's now black. You can now shrink down the video. So, and it's great if they can dim the lights, which they can always do. They dim the lights and then they see a blank you know, black screen and the small video. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of the theater. So black screen is the easiest way, the easiest, simplest way to do it. Just boom, there you go. Another fantastic technique that I like to use is you create another screen within a screen. So on your PowerPoint slide, you put in a photo of a computer monitor or a laptop and you shrink it down. And then you can get a licensed picture from iStock or any of these other stock houses and you put it down here. So you are, the brain is looking at a screen and they're seeing a computer monitor or they're seeing a laptop. Then you take that video image and you shrink it down to fit the dimensions of that screen on the screen. Yes. So again, it's maybe a third or 40% or 50% of the size of the total you know, slide image. And the, the audience's brains accept that because that's logical. Let's talk about selfies. The great opportunity with video selfies is to make your clients the hero, to work your clients into the presentation. And so imagine before a presentation, it's like if you have time, you're speaking in the afternoon, you go to the conference early and you go to someone, it's like, you know, uh, Stephen, it's like, what do you think about whatever your topic is? Or how does this apply to your company? And you start talking, wait, 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 here you go. Take a video selfie and record yourself saying that. He goes, oh, okay, and they do it in the moment, and you get like about a 10 or 15 second clip. So it's usually like about two sentences. Like, uh, when it comes to closing s sales, man, I just suck at this. I would do anything to close more sales. You're getting sound bites. So when you think of a video selfie from a client or a customer, an audience member, think of a sound bite. That's what you're after, a sound bite. Now you say, great, send that to me. Boom, 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 boom. They send it to you. You do that to five other people. Now you go into your slides and you insert that little video. And what I do is I put a picture of an iPhone or a generic looking smartphone and I shrink down that video clip that they provided, that video selfie, to fit onto it and I string them together. And so it's like, you know, earlier today I was talking to several of you and saying, what do you think about closing ratios? And said, and then also on this slide you put the name. So, oh, there's Steven Iverson and he says, 
You know, gosh, I would do anything to find a way to close more you know, sales. And here's Pilar. You know, I would uh, double my sales if I could just increase my closing rate by X percent. And here's Rocky. It's like, oh my gosh, closing sales? I can't even remember the last time I closed something. Ha <laughs> ha. I mean, so you get these four or five together. And what you've done is you've made the audience the hero. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, you're, you're, so instead of a video selfie of you, have it be a video selfie of them. Now, the exception to that is if you insert yourself and you do something funny. And so it's like, and I like to do is like change your name. So it'd be like, you know, here's Steven, here's Pilar, here's Rocky, here's Bob Walter. It's, it's like, and so it's, and you're like, and you change your voice. So it's like, oh, I don't know. I wish there was a speaker who could come and help us about this. That would be amazing. You know, that would be funny. Now, I'm not saying you should do it, but you can do it. If you're going to include yourself, don't put some pompous quote of you. Because there's a phrase, a pompous donkey. So, so you don't want to have pomposity. No one wants that. But you could put a self-deprecating or a funny version of you in something like that. Wonderful information. Thank you very much, Brian Walter, CSP, CPAE for sharing with us about videos. Yes, thank you very much. And one more thing that is very important when using or recording videos, I see this all the time, is the audio. Audio is the most important element of any video, Stephen. Oh, that's right. You know, people will forgive a blurry image, but if they cannot hear clearly what's being said, they'll disengage immediately. And Brian, when we were talking with him, recommended that the easiest way to solve that is to use subtitles and the audience will appreciate the experience. Well, Ruby, this edition of VOE has been all about branding and I got to be honest with you, I look to you as one of the people who really models great branding. Could you help us understand your perspective on that issue? Well, thank you for the kind compliment, Stephen. I appreciate that. You know, branding has always been to me something that is in your heart. And when you're wearing your brand every day, it's not just about your website and about the colors you choose or your logo. It's about how you show up and the reputation that you create for your clients and for the industry. So it's what the, the people that you work with every day, what they say about you, you know, that reputation becomes your brand and vice versa. You know, you, you put it out there. You decide how you want to be known and then you take major steps to live up to it and you think about all the different ways that you can represent that. To me, sometimes we have disingenuous marketing. So sometimes there's people who, you know, put something out on the website and it looks awesome and then we've all had those moments where we've seen somebody show up and they really don't match their marketing material. And so, to me, it's about wearing that brand, being that brand, and creating the reputation with every single interaction, making sure that you're living up to the expectations of the clients and the people that you work with and the people that you encounter all the way through the process. And it's about also keeping it consistent because now that you mentioned sometimes you put something in the website, what about those pictures that have been for 20 years on a brochure or a business card and then you meet the person and like, is this you? So it's about keeping it genuine, real, and current. 
You know, that's a great question, Pilar, because I, I believe that sometimes we have to put up, you know, the, the very professional image that, you know, shows that you're perfect and polished, but at the same time, if you don't balance that out with the reality of how you are, then they expect that perfect and polished person to show up, and, and I'm not perfect and polished, and I certainly don't want to give that perception. So, like on my Facebook page, I'm in the middle of a stadium with my arms outstretched, having a good time, and, you know, it's just about wearing the brand, being the brand, and making sure that you're representing the kind of person that shows up for the engagement or that the, I, I do a lot of long-term client work. So those contracts are, you know, they see me a lot. And it's about how you show up and the, the, the personality that you bring and how you incorporate your personality into that brand. You know, I really think that our brand and our reputation really go hand in hand. And then, of course, one of the themes that you'll hear me talk about all year is authenticity. How are you congruent with your brand and how are you taking steps to do that? You know, I think an authentic brand will really open many doors for our businesses. And I think that it's really important that we establish a positive reputation. And that will get us the repeat engagements and the increased business that we all strive for as professional speakers. And that will definitely differentiate it from others. Thank you for this message. Will we have a great day? You too. Thanks for asking. I'm sitting here looking at the Speaker Magazine for October, and this convention update is outstanding. It looks like it was a, a fabulous convention. Yes, an amazing publication, pictures, articles, comments. It's so colorful, but I like the way you say it looks like it was an amazing convention. We were there, Stephen. Well, I know we were there, but we didn't really get to see it or experience it because we were in the studio recording the entire time we were there for VOE. And yet the conversations we had in the hallways, a lot of people were saying it was one of the best experiences they've ever had. And yes, behind the scenes, we were recording and we will remember forever the 2015 convention that we were recording and listening and hearing from the speakers and from all our colleagues firsthand. That was like having breakout sessions, private one-on-one -on -one sessions uh, in our studio, right? That's right. You know, looking at these photos here, I'm thinking about my first convention and really a lot of memories come to mind. When was your first convention? My first convention was Indianapolis 2012, and I, you are absolutely right. I will never forget Gene Robertson, a legend on the stage. That was a moment that stayed in my mind forever. Which one was for you, the, your first convention? I know you were listening to VOE on cassette, on tapes, not to say anything, but... Oh, now, now you're just making fun of me because I've been around so long. No, we my have first... been around so long. <laughs> my first convention was actually 2005, and it was in Atlanta. And I remember two or three very profound presentations that were, were presented then. But more so, I really recall the relationships that were established that very first time. And as we ask our colleagues in our groups on Facebook, we can see that, we can read for their comments that it's all about the relationships, the person that they met, that VIP that they had the opportunity to impact. It's all about the networking. 
It is. And I think that's the greatest value of our association. The conventions, the education is phenomenal, but it really is that give and take of how we help each other become even better at this profession that is so special about NSA. And not letting the ego in between. I will never forget a person like Brian Tracy on the first row taking notes and then taking the time to talk to me, to ask questions, to take a picture. And I'm sure you remember something similar. Oh, I do. I remember Zig Ziglar turning and, and just introducing himself to me as if he needed to be introduced, but showing real interest in a new person who is a part of the association. That was a profound experience. And definitely in this convention 2015, we had two speakers that were the highlight of the convention and everyone is talking about. Ima Cooley. Yes, and Mark Scherenbrock, who both commanded the stage in very different ways, but had powerful impact. Different messages, different lessons, different styles, but we know we can impact and make a difference. So that's what we wanted to talk about. Any convention that we attended or will be attending in the future, it will be our memory forever for one reason, and let's have it for the right reason. Yes. And if you're listening right now and you missed the convention, take advantage of the audio downloads. Get that information for you because it will help you as you develop your profession. And we do want to encourage you to take advantage of VOE, not just the audio portions, but the app as well as the videos that you're going to have access to every single month. And every month we would like to hear from you. Your suggestions and your ideas are powerful. So make sure you contact us through Facebook or an email because this is VOE for you. You and VOE. See you next month. See you then. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>